0: It is indeed a pleasure to have this privilege to play here for you. We we intend to give you a very fine program. So just settle back, relax, and enjoy the moment.
1: Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Mike Up, an unapologetic, low-country-based podcast from the Charleston Activist Network. I'm your host, Mika Gadsden. In today's episode, we're going to dive right into the fight against white resistance within our local media, a fight that quite honestly, we've been engaged in since the advent of printed media. I'm reminded of the fight for folks to create subversive ways to communicate or create their own media outlets. Um, when I reflect on this this lecture, I was able to sit in on. Uh, it was May of last year, May 20th, yep, of 2019. The Charleston County Public Library System hosted this amazing lecture. Um, I'm going to let you hear some audio from that lecture, and then I'm going to come back on the other side and break it down for you. But just take a listen to how folks, how black Gullah Geechee folks, how they communicated when their very lives depended upon it. Take a listen. Into the woods.
2: Nichols instructed his enslaved driver to go to the fields, gather together the field hands, and hide them in the woods. He claimed he was unarmed as he attempted to gather up the house slaves. They gathered around Nichols, according to Nichols, professed their attachment to and willingness to obey him, but did not. Field hands who had already returned to the quarters did not return to the plantation, as the enslaved driver ordered. When Nichols pursued them along the street of slave cabins, he found them packing their meager belongings, with the enemy US steamers perched by then on his landing and disembarking approximately 400 black troops, Nickeld ordered those who were legally his property to follow him into the woods. Like the house slaves, the field hands knew better than to outwardly refuse. Minus Hamilton, an 88-year-old man, Colonel Higginson interviewed after he liberated himself in the raid from Charles Lowndes' plantation, described how, quote, the black soldiers so presumptuous um, quote, came ashore, held their heads up, and destroyed the system that kept them in bondage. And I quote, De people was all a hoeing, Massa. They was hoein in de rice field when de gunboats come. Then every man drapped him hoe and left de rice. And Massa stand and call, Run to de wood for hide. Yankee come, sell you to Cuba, run for hide. Every man run, and my God, run all the other way. (laughs) Massa stand in the wood, peep, peep, afraid for trust. He say run to the wood, and every man run by him, straight to the boat." (laughs) Unquote. The elder reveled in seeing the fruits of his labors which had been stolen from him and all the enslaved labor force set ablaze by the free black men who, okay, I just have to, I have to pause there. Set ablaze by the free black men who came to give him his freedom, okay? These were men who'd been enslaved in the Low Country, who literally fought, as they say, with ropes around their neck because they, like Harriet Tubman, would have been hung or re-enslaved if they were caught. These men risked their lives once to run away, twice to free other people. Unrepentant about the soldiers' actions, the elder proclaimed he, quote, didn't care for CM Blaze, Lord, Massa didn't care nothing at all. Unquote. He did not look back for long at his former slaveholders' property going up in flames. Quote, I was going to the boat. Unquote. Like Mr. Hamilton, enslaved men, women, and children ran the other way when Nicholas told them to go to the woods and hide before the Yankees sold them to Cuba. Nicholas fled to the woods alone. Words that quote Lincoln's gunboats unquote had come to set them free spread fast within enslaved communities on the Cumby via what some have called a mysterious communication system. It's not that mysterious.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, y'all. I'm gonna include a link to this entire lecture within the show notes of this podcast episode. So please, I invite you to to listen to the entire lecture or to watch the entire lecture. It's currently on YouTube. Um, I wanna back up for a second before I jump into my commentary about what we just listened to, which was for me quite gripping. Um, what we were just listening to was historian, Dr. Etta Fields Black, right? And I'm going to read from her bio that the Charleston County Public Library provided for this event. Um, So, yeah, Dr. Etta Fields Black, uh, she's uh, speaking on this little known chapter of Gullah Geechee in American history when more than 750 enslaved men, women, and children were freed one day in June, June of 1863 from the plantations that lined South Carolina's Cumbahee River. Dr. Etta Fields Black is an associate professor in the history department at Carnegie Mellon University and a specialist in the transnational migration of West African rice farmers, peasant farmers on the pre-colonial Upper Guinea Coast, and enslaved laborers on rice plantations in the South Carolina and Georgia Low Country. Um, Her bio is impressive. Her scholarship is remarkable. And I, again, I'm going to include not just uh, a link to this lecture, which is transformative, y'all. <laughs> y'all know how much I love history and great historians. Yeah, I'm going to include a link to her lecture, but also I think she might have a book. I know at the time of this uh, lecture, I believe she was in the midst of of creating a book and i'm not quite sure if it was published or finished completed I, i'm not sure but um i'll link i'll link you to all things dr eda fields black i think it's just she's just a remarkable historian and the entire lecture is amazing but I want to bring it bring it all back to why I included that clip. I wanted you to hear a historian read from oral histories and and, and use her scholarship, uh, use their scholarship to help you understand, understand and contextualize what the fight for what the fight for liberation may have looked like and how Black folk have used communication as a means to get free and why it was so necessary to create you know, to maintain and, and use language like Gullah language, right? She goes on in the lecture, Dr. Eric Fields Black goes on to talk about the, the use of um, when Harriet Tubman enters the story. And um, yeah, and just a reminder, please listen to the previous episode if you want to know more about the Cumbahee River Raid and Harriet Tubman. But Harriet Tubman, um, her recollections are even included in the lecture. And it, and it talks about that Gullah language and the word bakra and other things um, that Gullah folk uh, had, had used and communicated with. And so it's, it's the language of Gullah. It's the fight for liberation. It's it's all these different things that we need to to remember uh, when we're when we're thinking about Black history and Gullah history and how folks mounted fights or mounted um, efforts to get free. And um, it's important that we remember this history so it can inform the way we digest what we're reading now. Okay. You know, you know me, I'm always trying to stick the landing, even though this is not the end of the podcast. I'm trying to make sure that I thread this all together. Um, I want to ne- now get into why I felt it was necessary to create this episode. If you follow me on social media, you already know that um, I hold our institutions accountable, uh, most notably our local press outlets. Um, the Post and Courier has really... Baffled me in recent days, months, weeks, maybe even years, in their coverage of not just this recent uprisings that we've been witnessing here locally and around the globe, but their coverage of black, uh, black events, um, issues that impact black lives, affordable housing, um, climate, poverty, crime, the way they cover North Charleston. Uh, you know, the resources that they allocate to to cover these stories have always baffled me. There are a number of editorial decisions that leave me scratching my head. And, in, and instead of arriving at convenient conclusions that say, you know what, well, this is just a good old boy system. And it's a lot of white men in charge of the news. I really wanted to back up what my intuition was telling me with some sound reading. And when I tell y'all, last year I stumbled across this amazing book. It's called Newspaper Wars. And um, let me read the cover of the book. It's by Sid Bedingfield. And again, the complete title of the book is Newspaper Wars, uh, Civil Rights and White Resistance in South Carolina from 1935 to 1965. And it's all about how black media emerged and launched the civil rights era, launched the the fight for civil rights here in the Deep South. And it's a history, it's a South Carolina history. It's a Charleston-based history that folks don't know enough about. And so um, some of you may know I was in a media fellowship, and that's how I started on my journey to learn more about how Black folk use media to, to counter the narratives that were being printed in papers like um, what was the first or the previous iterations of The Post and Courier. And I'm gonna let you listen to this next clip. It it is from said Beddingfield, right? Um, the author of this book. And he talks about someone who I meditate on, and I meditate on his work, and also I view what's rem- what's left of his work because a lot of his work has been destroyed, and we don't have that many issues of the newspaper that was launched by John H. McCrae. but take a listen. This was uh, Sid Bedingfield. He was on the Roland Martin Show a couple of years ago, and he talks about the importance of not just John H. McCrae, but the importance of of black media.
3: Got Take it, a listen. You. So see it. One of the reasons I wanted to have you here uh, to talk about this book because what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to connect this generation with the black press historically, and why we have to have black media outlets like this one that tell our story, where many of these stories often don't get the level of intensity uh, from mainstream cable and broadcast news or even a lot of our major newspapers.
0: Well, I think that's true. One thing I wanted to do in the book was to give due credit to John Henry McRae and the Lighthouse and Informer. Sometimes in the study, even within the study of the black press, the African-American press, the southern black press of the first half of the 20th century, um, it's sometimes disregarded. It's seen as being always being cautious, conservative, accommodationist, unwilling to push for civil rights forcefully, understandably, under uh, the oppression of Jim Crow rule at that time. <clears throat> but John Henry McCray stepped out of that model. Uh, he um, launched his paper, actually, in Charleston, uh, was aggressive uh, in fighting for equal rights for African-Americans from demanding it. Um, and he played, and his paper played, um, a sort of an unheralded role in launching a very successful civil rights effort in South Carolina in the late 30s and particularly in the 40s. The movement flourished in the 40s, had some real success in the 40s and early 50s, um, and then was sort of uh, fractured and, and um, dispersed by fierce white backlash, especially in the years after Brown v. Board of Education. Uh, but John right. McCrae, I think, is a hero mm-hmm. who doesn't get enough credit, uh, is one of those uh Black editors in the deep South, not just the South, but in the deep South, um, who actually helped launch the civil rights movement there. You know, y'all, it's
1: tough. (laughs) It's tough to resist the urge to credit the supernatural or or to tell you that I feel it's my ancestors that is leading me on this journey to find these stories, to discover this this history, to to resurrect these unsung heroes within our black history, I, I, it can only be a higher power. You know, um, I'm, I think about the coverage of the current uprising. I think about the coverage from the Post and Courier, their editorial staff that penned that opinion about the removal of the Calhoun statue and how they admonished our local elected officials for bringing down the statue. And I think about how they chose to show the faces of black people who were engaged in the uprisings that took place on May 30th. I'm thinking about the politics at play and the history of the Post and Courier, how they were led in the 60s and 50s by staunch segregationists. And I wonder how many of those ghosts still haunt their newsroom. Um, I've spoken with, at length, many a a current and former reporter at The Post and Courier, and without betraying any confidences, I'd like to just let y'all know that what we're reading and what we're feeling about what we're reading is not wrong. There's something at play, something larger at play within our local media institutions. Not all of them, not each reporter, not each member of the editorial staff or leadership, but there's something wrong within the culture. Someone gave me a phrase when, in regards to the Post and Courier. They said that the Post and Courier still suffers from a plantation-like mentality and how they approach news and how they approach issues that impact not just black folk or Gullah folk, but people of color and other marginalized communities. Undocumented folks, so on and so forth. And, you know, it's that language, it's these conversations with former reporters, and it's reading this history about the lighthouse and informer, about Majeska Simpkins, about Harriet freeing the enslaved along the Cumbahee River. It's all of those things that really make it imperative for me to continue to fight. Fight the good fight that perhaps was launched by people like John H. McCray, and I'm going to continue to do that. I want you to challenge our local news outlets when you hear something that's being reported incorrectly because maybe you've seen it. Like I've had many people share with me their cell phone videos from the night of the uprisings that that directly contradict some some of the reporting that I saw on nightly news or read within the pages of the Post and Courier. I want you to speak truth to power and challenge it just the, the way that John McRae may have challenged it. And I want to read something from Sid's book, um, just a small excerpt um, all about John McRae. And I want you to maybe be influenced or inspired by by his boldness, by his courage. So I'll read it here. By 1940, McCray's newspaper had begun to annoy the white community in Charleston and the surrounding low country. Among other issues, the lighthouse had accused the city's police of mistreating black suspects. They were whipping heads, McCray said, and the newspaper had demanded the removal of whites-only signs from the benches in a park that surrounded a city lake. The annoyance had turned to anger when McCrae investigated a suspicious rape charge against a black doctor in nearby McClellanville. The lighthouse ran with what the editor described as a tabloid headline on its front page, White's framed doctor, force him from town. By the following evening, McCrae was jailed. The Charleston police held the editor and several staff members for questioning, without pressing charges. Not long after their release, the city raised the fee for newspapers' business licenses. The Weekly had been paying $10 annually. City officials now wanted $100, the same amount that daily newspapers paid. McCray said he realized it was time to leave Charleston. That's just an excerpt from this amazing book, and um, I really encourage you all to pick it up. It really, if, if only to learn more about John H. McRae and Majeska Simpkins and this this perilous fight, you know. Um, and also, like, this book makes me think this should be a movie. You know, we watch so many great movies like Spotlight and, um, you know, all, all of the classic media movies, Citizen Kane, all of that, all the President's Men, all that, right? It would be great to have a newspaper movie, um, some sort of biopic um, about John H. And, and and how he was really just in the thick of it. And he held no punches, y'all. He was a force to be reckoned with. I want to end this podcast episode on like a great note. Um, as I mentioned earlier in this in this episode, I was in a media fellowship. And part of my project was I wanted to create art that told the story of John McRae. And I'm not necessarily that gifted when it comes to like drawing or making music. So of course, I called the homie in and um, asked him to help me out. And the homie I'm talking about specifically is uh, Benny Starr. And so Benny wrote a short song about John H. McRae. It was influenced by his fight to um, launch the lighthouse and what was later to be called in Columbia, the lighthouse and informer. So I'm going to end with that track. And I, I really do hope that you all, um, you start your own journey to learn more about Historical Black uh, Media members or, or, or figures in media and newspapers, and and I also want to end at least my portion of this podcast with just letting you know or saying the names of African American newspapers that none of us really know that much about that we shouldn't we shouldn't forget and we shouldn't forget their work and their legacy of truth telling amid uh, the most terrifying circumstances. Those newspapers that I want to lift up right now are the Palmetto Leader, the Lighthouse and Informer, the Afro-American Citizen, the Charleston Advocate, the Georgetown Planet, Missionary Record, the Rock Hill Messenger, the Southern Indicator. The South Carolina Leader. The Free Citizen. The Free Press. And the People's Recorder. Just lift them up. Just reflect on those historic civil rights and African American newspapers. And until the next episode of mic Up, y'all please keep resisting, keep fighting. To all my Gullah Geechee folk out there. Y'all stay black. Lighthouse,
3: yeah, 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 Yo. A savvy sailor using wind to navigate the waves. Don't underestimate my labor, I haven't slept in days. The hours stretch for months, the nights are bitter cold. I shine the light the guide you in, I like to lift your soul, I wrote about it Scribbled affirmations in a native language I call for self-determination as we pray for patience Tebony Hughes in their finest shoes, their crease slacks and wide-brim hats Their gold brooches and skirts with the laces I'm agitated, we won't get those 1860s back All I got is a peace of mind warring with these Dixiecrats These Strom Thurmans standing in our path to a greater math This is the repercussion of reconstruction deconstructed. On this percussion, I pontificate collective action plans worth espousing. Informing all the patrons in the juke joints to all of the faithful posted in our church's housing. My lord, I'm shedding light for a growing race. The down payments on bonds we'll use to own the place. Yeah, I know they after me, it never baffles me. I see their strategy, institutions lying on my name, trying to silence me in chains, to quiet my refrain. Cause I wrote about it, scribbled affirmations in a native language. I call for self-determination as we pray for patience. To ebony hues in their finest shoes, their crease slacks, wide brim hats, gold brooches and skirts with the laces. A savvy sailor using wind to navigate the waves. Don't underestimate my labor, I ain't slept in days The hours stretch for months, the night's are bitter cold I shine the light that guide you in, a light to lift your soul The Lighthouse